So we ended up with a bunch of church people at a parade Saturday night, okay? And there were people there. There was lots of purple and uh, lots of purple and yellow there, okay? A lot, a lot of LSU hats and LSU T-shirts and rolled up with cigarettes in the, you know, and, and that was just the women. Um, <laughs> That was heartless. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, they were so, this town, West Monroe, Louisiana, was celebrating kind of early, but they were celebrating um, Mardi Gras. Okay, so Rhonda caught some beads, and uh, the little girls we were with had beads. Like they had more than their weight in beads, which was cute. Um, it, it, where we were was very. It was fun and uh, very sweet and very family oriented. What anything like? what they do, I guess, some places. But it reminded me to remind you that Lent begins this week. Okay, we're on that thing. So Wednesday uh, begins Lent. What, what's the matter? No, that's right. Did I mess up? No. Okay, I think I'm right. I think I'm right. Well, Rhonda says you got to give up something. Here, I want to challenge you with something. Okay, I'm, I may give up Brussels sprouts for Lent. I'm thinking about that. Um, but think about it in another way. What if you add something? Okay. Here's what I'm going to ask you to add. So next week, uh, I'm going to start a series. And I'm not exactly sure where I'll be, but from now till, East, till, the, till Palm Sunday, I want us to talk about the stories of Jesus. So if you never have, or if it's been a while since you've read one of the Gospels, why don't you add that to your life for the next 40 days or so, okay? Read a chapter a day, read a paragraph a day. Um, and it doesn't matter to me which one you read. They're all the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and I'll teach from, from several different passages. But think about as you begin, okay, so Mardi Gras is that celebration of all kinds of things before Lent, the night before Lent, or the day before Lent. So the idea is, though, to, to take inventory for these next 40 days or so. I can't think of a better way to prepare for Easter than reading the stories of Jesus. So I'll just throw that challenge at you. I would love to get email from some of you saying, okay, I took you up on your challenge. Let me tell you what God is doing in my life. Okay, so we're going to talk about some of that in the weeks to come. Now go with me to 1 Kings. Uh, by the way, any other visitors we ought to say hey to? Glenda, you want to? You want to... This is my friend Jane Pliska from Houston. She's up once a year to see me. Welcome, Jane. Good to see you. She told me they picked her up on the road. I don't really believe that. But anybody else? First timer? Do we need to see? Looking. Sorry. Well, Sue Ann, it's so good to have you here today, and uh, I don't know that you've ever been here, have you? Okay. Well, welcome back. Okay. Welcome back. All right. Go with me to First Kings, okay? I want to do what? Right now. 
and you'll be the next week. And I'm going to sit right back there and heckle you, partner. Okay. I'm not putting up with this anymore. All right. All right, 1 Kings 1. Here we go. When, when the book of 1 Kings dawns, um, we find ourselves in a united kingdom under David. Now, that's not going to last very long. But as 1 Kings dawns, uh, if you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, it kind of, if you turn the page, it kind of says, okay, here's the rest of the story. But um, David, um, the first king of Israel was Saul. You're going to read about him in 1 Samuel. You're going to read about David there, and then he takes control of the kingdom in 2 Samuel. Well, as 1 Kings dawns, you're going to find a united kingdom of Israel under David. If you, if you look at a map, you'll recognize that uh, there is lots and lots of territory under David's control, uh, more so really than any other except maybe Solomon. Um, um, as First Kings dawns, okay, now men, you'll want to dial into this, but I don't, I don't, I don't recommend that you try it. Um, David was old and cold. Okay, <laughs> yeah. he was getting old and cold. Sometimes, somehow, those two things go together. And so they sought a beautiful girl to keep him warm. Now, I don't recommend guys that you ask for that. Okay, but they did that for David. Her name was Abishag. It's interesting. The, some of the intrigue that ensues after David dies, Abishag becomes kind of a uh, good luck charm, and, and the next guy that wants to be king, who was not to be king, asks for the hand of Abishag, and uh, Solomon doesn't much care for that. So, so you meet then, as you read on, you're, you meet Adonijah, who was a son of David, who thought he ought to be king, but he was not to be king. Who was going to be the next king of United Israel? Solomon. Solomon, David's son with, you know who? Solomon's Bathsheba. Uh, mama was Bathsheba, yeah. Um, so um, so if you read that story as Solomon takes control in the opening uh, uh, several chapters of, of the book of First Kings. And then by the time we get to, um, uh, by the time we get to the end of Solomon's reign, and I'm looking here just to kind of make sure I get it right. So by... Chapter 12 or so, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes control. All right? Now, Rehoboam does some very unwise things. Solomon had done a few of those himself by the time the end of his reign came. But Rehoboam decides that he's going to listen to his friends instead of listening to his elders. And it literally causes a rift in the nation that will never be repaired. So the northern ten tribes just say, we're done. And you read then about, and this is confusing a little bit, you read about Jeroboam, who was not Rehoboam's brother, but Jeroboam, who becomes the king of the north. And Rehoboam continues to being, be the king of the south. And you'll read about uh, what happens with him. It will be in the, as you read, if you read the rest of the book like I do, the northern ten tribes that become uh, the northern kingdom, also when it's talked about, it's talked about as Israel. The southern 
kingdom is talked about as Judah. Okay, so that's the, that can be a little confusing. But when, when you look at Israel's uh, kingly reigns, you realize that there are no good kings, no godly kings in the north. There are a few in the south. We've studied a couple of them. Okay, no good kings in the north, only a few in the south. The division of the nation didn't really help them. Now, so I want you to go to chapter 16 with me. There's a passage that I found this week that I had just missed in my reading before. But this is under the, the not godly reign of Jeroboam. Jeroboam decides that uh, the thing for him to do since, uh, since the tabernacle was in the temple now, was in Jerusalem, he's going to set up his own place to have people worship in the north so they don't have to go to Jerusalem. And he builds, has them build, cast a couple of, um, a couple of calves, golden calves, and, Heard about those guys before? How did that work out? Well, he has two and puts them in two different places for people to worship them, all right? It's interesting to me, if you look at 16, um, look at 1631. This is under Rehoboam. It came about, now look at this set off in commas here. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the sons of Nebat. And it's talking about Ahab, who is one of uh, his successors. We've talked about Ahab a little bit before. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he's got all kinds of not right worship things going on. That is Ahab. But isn't it interesting that as if it was no big deal that Jeroboam made all these terrible decisions, here it is, his successor is even worse. Rhonda's reading a book about Camp David. So I get a history lesson at five o'clock every morning. I'm reading some history stuff too. And anyway, she's reading about the kind of who, ran, who runs Camp David and who ran it back in the day. And she was reading about, uh, about the cabinet, the U.S. cabinet, the president's cabinet, right after, so in the day following 9-11. They all are shuttled away to Camp David to strategize what needs to be done. The picture that she pictured for me a couple of days ago just gripped my heart. During that time, John Ashcroft, the then um, attorney general, goes to the piano and Condoleezza Rice, the secretary of state, sings, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Can you think of a better thing for them to be about in one of the worst times in our history? Wouldn't you love it? Wouldn't you love it? If instead of doing whatever it was that was going on a couple of weeks ago during the State of the Union, wouldn't you have loved it? If they had said, you know, we've got a piano here. Somebody sing his eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Well, by the way, that was not intended to be a political statement. It's just a statement of we ought to respond in faith to our problems. That's what we're going to talk about today. 
So, Ahab is leading horribly, including the woman that he marries in order to make an alliance with her dad, the Baal worshiper. And so as you turn the page to chapter 17, Elijah comes on the scene, just like out of the blue. Isn't it wonderful that God, through periods of history, raises up somebody who's going to take good leadership, good spiritual leadership. Uh, when I read the books of Samuel, I realize that Samuel came in during a time when things were horrible and literally became the pivot point for the nation to return to God. Elijah's going to play that role too as a prophet. Now, so beginning in 17.1, here we go. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, that's in the north, said to Ahab, as the Lord of God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so um, he leaves. He throws down this gauntlet to the king. He leaves. And sure enough, it doesn't rain for a long time. If you continue reading 17 and 18, you'll read about how Elijah calls now for rain after the... Uh, um, the conflict of the deities in chapter 18 um, out at Mount Carmel. But between those times, uh, Elijah is kind of hidden out, and the Lord feeds him. He sends birds to feed him. He's by a brook, and ravens feed him meat and bread morning and evening. What a deal. He knows about the provision of God, which is interesting given what happens in chapter 19. Okay, Steve Blair, I think I've adequately got you set up. Would you read the first four verses of 1 Kings 19? Are they for him? Well, get him to read. Somebody over there read. All right. Okay. Remember what just happened. If you look back at 1836, uh, just kind of glance at 36 and scan down through 40, you realize that the greatest victory of Elijah's life has just taken place. Amen. Okay? God has been proven the God, the only God. Um, some men who are wicked have been put to death. But Jezebel hears about it, and she says, okay, Elijah, I'm coming for you. Okay? Forgetting the victory of chapter 18, Elijah takes off. Jezebel is ticked. She threatens, um, she kind of makes a vow that I'm going to kill you. She's mad about what happened at Mount Carmel. She's mad about um, uh, the deaths of all these uh, alleged priests that are in the end of uh, there in verse 40 or so in chapter 18. And so she vows um, I will make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So that's, she's threatening his, threatening his murder as a recompense. Now, so look at verse 3. Elijah's immediate response is to run. Okay? Evidently, if you look at verse 46 from chapter 18, Elijah was a runner. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So Ahab's in a chariot. He outruns him. Evidently, he was a runner. 
So his natural inclination was to run. By the way, I've, I've become somewhat of a, uh, um, an armchair expert on buffalo. I'm reading everything I get my hands on a buffalo. Have I told you that? Do you know what the buffalo's main um, defense mechanism is? Running. They can not only run pretty fast, but they can run all day long. So they, it's not that they necessarily outrun um, whatever's chasing them. They can just outlast them. It's kind of Elijah here. He runs. Chuck Swindoll said this one time. It stuck with me. Isn't it interesting that the human animal, the human animal is the only one that runs faster. Um, let me get the quote right. The human animal is the only one that has a tendency to run faster when he is lost. Think about it. When I don't know what to do, I just do more. Right? The human animal has a tendency, the only one in all the animal kingdom has a tendency to run faster when I don't know where to go. That's our friend Elijah here. Um, the problem was that he ran before he prayed. Um, somebody go, if you will, can I get somebody to go to Philippians 4? We've got two, two or three verses I want us to read there. Uh, would you do that, Laura? Yeah. Philippians 4, I want you to read verse 6 right now, if you would, please. Don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition. So the, the idea is, present your request to God. So the idea is, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. That's kind of the simple version of that, right? But Elijah's immediate response is to run when he should have prayed. I'm going to tell you, write out the letter before you quit. Pray over it for a few days. Elijah's just going to quit. It's interesting to me. Now, um, we're going to go to another area. So, will somebody get 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Somebody get that in a minute? Okay, Cindy, I'll, I'll come back to you in just a minute. Now, look at verse 4. Here's what he says. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It's enough now, O Lord. Take my life for I am not better than my father's. Now, Elijah's evaluation of his problem was a little bit off, okay? I want you to go to um, verse 14, okay? Um, um, actually, yeah, verse 14, he's gonna say later, um, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but he's gonna say, Later, this, he's going to say, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, same chapter, look down at verse 18. 
God says to him, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. How far off was Elijah's evaluation of his problem? About 6,999, yeah. Okay, I don't know what percentage it is, but I think it's pretty, pretty significant. The issue was here, he evaluated his problem before he had adequate rest. He was tired, exhausted, hungry. How many times have I made a rash decision when I was exhausted? Don't do that. It's interesting to me. Cindy, read 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a pretty important uh, this would be a good memory verse, but it's a pretty important passage for me to understand a test in life or a temptation in life. Okay? It's interesting. Sometimes I want to say to God, Lord, but, but you don't understand. My problem is unique. <laughs> Nobody's ever had it quite this bad before. What does, what does Paul say about that? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Somebody else has been in this boat before and they got through. You've been in, sometimes he, he says to me, you've been in worse places before. We got, we got through this. I can't plead that my situation is unique. Literally, Elijah is saying, I'm the only one. When there are 7,000 guys hid out somewhere else who have not yet bowed the knee. I think sometimes um, I want God to change my circumstances when what he really wants to change is my character. And he says, hang in there. We'll get through this. Don't run away. <laughs> Let's look at the next few verses here, okay? Um, Cindy, can I come back to you to read five through eight? That's it. That's it right there. It's where would you stop? So that's good. All right, now I'm going I'm to work through these verses really quickly because I've got some other stuff I want to apply here. But notice here that God cares for the prophet's physical needs. What does he do? do? He feeds him and he says, take a nap. You're, you're, you're out of control here. Take a nap. How good is God when you're troubled? He knows when you need rest. And when I think about Elijah running in the midst of his problem, what I realize that often it's the pace that's going to kill me. It's my pace that is unsustainable. And I just need to slow down. How wonderful is it that God says, hey, time out, slow down, have a little bit to eat, take a nap. That's God that says that. Now, so God cared for the prophet's physical needs, and then verse 7 is really important to me. In some ways, he needed a second touch. I'm not sure how exactly to apply that, but, but I know that he's ready to get up. He's eating and taking a little nap, and he's ready to get up and go attack somebody. And, he said, and God says, not yet. Sit back down. And he says this at the end of verse 7. The journey is too great for you. Now, I, uh, I, I thought about bringing a map to show you this, but Terry took them all with him to Israel. Um, 
So I couldn't do that. But if you, can you imagine, he starts out in the, in the far north. Carmel is a, uh, Mount Carmel is a little bit further south. He has now fled to Beersheba and then beyond. So he's out of the country. He's, he's almost to the Red Sea. He's at Horeb. Okay? He's gone a long way. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. If you look at your, at your Bible maps, you'll see that. He goes from all the way from the north to the south in Israel and then further, out, even out of Judah, way down to, to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And he's given there a different perspective. Maybe I should have gone to Horeb first. What does that represent? That's where God is. So what I've got to recognize is that what I need to do instead of just running away, is run to God. Run wherever he is. And he does that, and God meets him there. Now, let's, let's go to verse 11. All right, so, for some reason my page didn't want to turn right. So he said, go forth, God's saying this, and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking the pieces of rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. Now, the idea here is God is wanting to reveal himself to Elijah. Look at verse 9 and 10 just briefly here. He comes to a cave, he lodges there, and the word of the Lord came to him. I love it. What are you doing here, Elijah? God wants to reveal himself to you in your trouble, and he desired here to reveal himself to Elijah. And so, he begins to reveal himself in, in some pretty mighty ways. So, um, um, but there's, there's like a hurricane, a tornado in our that comes, breaking rocks and stuff is flying all around him and God is not in that. <coughs> Strong winds, then an earthquake and God's not in the earthquake. Then a fire and he's not in the fire, he's not there. Not that way, but then God comes to him gently. Now, what you and I have to recognize, I think, sometimes is that I better get really close to God when I'm in trouble because God, most of the time in my life, has answered me in a whisper. So I've got to get up really, really close to Him. It's interesting to me. We'll be in the car with, with my daughter, and she talks kind of softly sometimes. And I find myself saying, speak up, you know, because I'm old. Isn't it true that I need to do the same thing with God? Whatever trouble I'm in, I need to just get as close to him as I can, can because when he speaks to me, he's probably going to speak to me in whispers. And when he speaks to me, he's probably going to speak to me from right here. I need to go there too. So Elijah finds this. Uh, what I realize is that even though I probably needed it sometimes, God has never yelled at me. Some of you have. <laughs> But God never had. <laughs> he always speaks gently to me because he knows that's what I need. And he also knows I need to kind of draw up close. So in verse 14, notice, we've read it already. 
What I want to say to you about verse 14 is the Lord listens to Elijah's complaint. I think that's a wonderful thing for me to, to catch. When I'm in trouble or when something's not going well, when, when I need it the most, the God is going to listen to me. Does he care? Yes. How do I know? Because he listens. If you want to prove to somebody that you really care about them, listen to them as they complain to you. That's pretty important. And so God does that to the prophet. He's near and he listens. As you read the rest of the story, you're going to realize that as you read in verse, verse 15 and 16, he gives Elijah a new task to do. Uh, after he listens to his complaint, he says, okay, I've got, I got a deal for you here. I know things aren't looking good, but here's the deal. i got some stuff I need you to do. I love this about God. It's not like, okay, so just take the rest of the week off. No, it's like, I've got, I've got stuff for you to do. Here, I've got two kings for you to anoint, if you read those verses. And I've got, uh, he literally says, I've got two kings that I need you to anoint, one in the north and one in the south, two new ones. And he says, I've got, an assistant for you. Rhonda, how do you remember the difference between Elijah and Elisha? Because Jade comes before Beth. Okay, I, she, when she's trying to remember. <laughs> Elijah comes before Elisha because J is before S. Okay, well, however you need to do it, that's how she does it. So Elisha, he meets and calls to, into service and he apprentices him. God gives him not only a new task to do, but he gives him a helper to do it. And the rest of the story is pretty wonderful too. Some other time we'll, we'll get to that. So here's, here's what I want to say to you in, in the couple of minutes we got left. Uh, how do I need to handle a problem in life? Uh, if you don't have one today, You'll have one, okay? Just So if you don't need this for today, you will tomorrow or the day after, okay? Sorry about that. If that discourages you, it's just the way it is, all right? If it's not today, it'll be, it's coming, okay? So here's, here's a couple of things. Let me give you four verbs, all right? The first one is give. Give the problem to the Lord in prayer first, okay? Before I start running Complain to God first. He's big enough. He can handle it. He actually wants you to talk to him. Even if you're complaining, it's okay. So give it to him first. Second, be. Be at your best physically before you make a major decision. Okay? Don't go into this. You know, I've got a. I've got a raging sinus infection and uh, I haven't slept in days. I think I'm going to change my job. <laughs> I'm just going to quit. You laugh at that because you've probably thought about doing something like that. Okay? I'm just going to sell my house. Major decisions don't need to be made when I'm not at my best physically. Okay, third, allow. Allow God to use whatever it is you're going through as an agent of change in your life. Allow whatever it is you're going through, even this thing that you wouldn't have chosen, to become an agent of change. 
Tricia is so good to ask me about Jake every Sunday. And um, he and I have been talking more than ever. You know, if, if anything, the last seven months have led to that. We're talking more than ever. And he said to me this week, as he said to me the last two or three weeks, you know, Dad, I wouldn't have chosen this. And I still don't understand it. But I'm closer to the Lord than I've ever been in my life. Whatever this is, and I don't know what it is. The Lord is using that to bring this boy close to him. And he's going to be a better leader for it. He'll be a better man for it. So is it okay for me to say, whatever it is you're going through, allow the Lord to use it. He didn't cause it. God doesn't work that way. But allow him to use it to make you better, to draw you closer. Uh, and even to possibly change you into an agent of change for somebody else. Fourth. Walk. Walk in faith. And then the power of his strength. Allow him to reveal his will in the midst of the problem. Sometimes God offers us his presence and help in the midst of our problem. Rather than allowing us at least immediately to escape from whatever circumstance I find myself in. No, we're going to hang out here for a few days because I got some things to teach you. By the way, have you noticed this? In the middle of some kind of a circumstance, isn't it interesting how much better my hearing gets? You know? It's just really funny. Um, um, we were traveling places I've never been before and trying to use the GPS in the car. And I keep thinking, when is she going to talk to me again? I need directions. Isn't it interesting that we're tuned in more? So, allow. Walk by faith. Put one faith-filled step in front of another. And allow him to lead you through this time. I, okay, I just got to say this to you. I don't know. I'm assuming nobody in this room needed this talk but me. Um, but I'm going to ask you to live by faith. I'm going to try to do the same thing. I'm, I'll give you reports on how it's going, okay? And I, I really want to encourage you to think about it at least adding to your life over the next 40 days, beginning Wednesday, or you can begin today. Reading the gospel. Read Jesus' story during this Lenten period. And we'll study some of it together in the weeks to come, okay? Hey, I'll see you. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for being here.